You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, good evening again, everyone. We are on week seven on our companions along the way. We're, uh, we've extended beyond our six weeks. We're now on week seven, and we'll carry on for one more week. Um, and so in order to situate uh, our man Dietrich Bonhoeffer tonight, I wanted to begin with a passage. Oh man, there's lots of passages that we could look at. But um, I'm actually speaking on this passage at, um, at, a, at a different church, recorded kind of thing, on, on Philippians. So it's been on my, I've been meditating on this passage this week. It's a powerful one. It's Philippians 3. Paul says these words. He says, not that I've already attained this, obtained this, or I'm already perfect. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This picture of pressing on in, in, in despite the circumstances is going to be a big theme in the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, we call you Lord, and we mean that. Sometimes that word um, slips off our tongue too easily when we call you Lord, but we do mean it. You are Lord of our life, and you are Lord of Bonhoeffer's life, your servant. And so we pray that you would guide us as we look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life tonight. Guide our conversation, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> there's a lot going on in our world today. I'm going to set this up a little bit differently. Um, there's a lot going on in our world right now. Would you agree? Yeah? <laughs> uh, if you're like me, it's, it's easy to feel a little bit overwhelmed. And one of my concerns about what's going on in our world right now is that there's a lot of narratives. There's a lot of stories floating about that are shaping how we see ourselves and how we see our world. And this is important. As a guy named Alistair McIntyre puts it, he says, I, he says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I know the stories or stories um, um, that shape my life? I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? And so we have a lot of, stories going around in our world, in the news and social media about the nature of reality. And this does affect us for good or for ill. And here's the problem. A lot of the stories that are floating around are stories that really have nothing to do with God. And there are stories that say, this is what life is all about. But the depiction of life is a depiction of life devoid of God. Or if God does exist, he certainly does not matter or factor in. And so one of the things that uh, I've often taught them is, is, is that um, there is a hidden assumption in our world. And the hidden assumption in the way 
the state works and the way politics works and the way lots of things work, the hidden assumption is actually theological. It's this idea that God is irrelevant to the function of day-to-day life. And for all intents and purposes, it amounts to functional atheism. Now, why am I telling you all these things? Well, as uh, the good old J.C. Ryle, the old preacher says, I got this from Lori this week. This is a great quote. He says, we live in an age where there is a false glare on things of time and a great mist over things of eternity. Let me say that again. It's such a cool quote. We live in an age where there's a false glare take a that, uh, on the things of time and a great mist over things of eternity. So, our, so what's shining and catching our attention are the things that are temporal. And when we are actually trying to focus on things that are eternal, um, our, our vision is misty. And so we live in a, in a world where, where we feel uneasy. We feel dislocated. There's no overall story to our lives. Um, we live in a world where everything seems to be in a state of flux. Everything's changing. My goodness, we go from day to day to day. And there's something new that everybody's upset about. <laughs> there's something new that's, that's going on in, in the world. And, uh, and, and that kind of can kind of affect you after a while. And, and there's a lot of a personal opinion flying around. And, and here's a problem. Here's a problem is that, so, you know, if you have your opinion and I have my personal opinion and uh, we got Dave, you have your personal opinion. And then Michael, you got your personal opinion and Natalia, you got your personal opinion. And then we bump into each other. Well, what arbitrates our personal opinions, right? So if I have a personal opinion, you have a personal opinion and they run into each other. How do, you, how do you navigate that? How do you make your way through that? Uh, well, in a world where there's no sense of the common good, the way you navigate that is through power. It's through power. And now the reason why I'm bringing this up is because this has something to do with our man Bonhoeffer. Because I think, I think some of the ideology that we're facing in our current context is not that dissimilar. So it's quite similar to the ideology leading up to Germany in World War II. That's a big statement. But part of the reason why I say this is that the language that mediates our conversations today is the language of power. And so it's strength, not love and mercy, that is the expression of our culture. And uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a big issue. And so the context in where Bonhoeffer emerges is, is I see some parallels. Now, of course, they're different. You know, we're, we're not living in Germany. It's not 1930. Uh, there's lots of things have changed. But as a historian, you look for patterns. And, and there, are some, there are some similarities. And I think this is uh, going to feed into our our story of Bonhoeffer. Um, I think what Bonhoeffer, we're, we're going to look tonight, is we're going to look at what uh, Bonhoeffer's life and teaching, um, w- w- what is it that we can recover for our age today? And uh, we're going to look in particular at Bonhoeffer's understanding of community. And I think he's going to be a good guide for us in this quagmire that we find ourselves in today.
So let me tell you the story of Bonhoeffer. I'll, I'll, I'll share my screen because I think I have some, uh, some pictures along the way. So let me share this. And there we go. Yeah. Yeah, so we talked about this. That's a quote. We live in an age where there's a false glare on things of time and a great mist over the things of eternity. I like that. Um, and uh, hang on one second. I like doing this. Um, there we go. Um, yeah. So let's look at Bonhoeffer. His years are 1906 to 1945. Um, dies just two weeks before the end of the, uh, end of the Second World War. A um, couple books uh, to read Bonhoeffer. Uh, the, the best biography on Bonhoeffer is not Eric Metaxas. And many of you have uh, maybe heard of that book. Um, the best book is this book by Charles Marsh. It's a very, very good biography. It reads very, really well on Bonhoeffer. And it places Bonhoeffer in, in his own context. Metaxas tries to make Bonhoeffer into somebody who's not. Anyhow, that's another conversation. Um, his, um, his main works, I mean, he's got, uh, he wrote quite a bit, but um, it's The Cost of Discipleship and the book Life Together. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about the context. See, bon- Bonhoeffer was born in Breslau, Germany in 1906. He grew up in a very educated, very gifted, uh, and very loving home uh, with his parents and six siblings. Um, he was, uh, his father was a noted physician and psychiatrist. Um, his father was agnostic, though. And uh, through Bonhoeffer's upbringing, he actually had very little to do with the church. But Bonhoeffer's mom would still tell him stories from the Bible every now and then. So he had some familiarity, but not a whole lot. It's not a real Christian household. So everyone was surprised when Dietrich Bonhoeffer, at the age of 14, walks into the fa- family living room where the family was gathered. And he tells everyone that he is going to be a pastor. And someone said, can you be a pastor? And, uh, you know, they, they kind of mocked him. And they said, you know, don't you realize that the church was, quote, a poor, feeble, boring, petty, bourgeois institution? <laughs> to which Bonhoeffer replied, well, if that's the case, then I will change it. Uh, in 1923, at the at 17 years old, he entered the University of Tübingen. Um, the university was pretty liberal uh, in in the sense of German liberalism. Really, uh, um, was quite prevalent there. And so he transferred to the University of Berlin, where he completed his studies in theology. Uh, he had a chance to visit to Rome, and uh, while he was in Rome, he got a sense of just the importance of the unity of the church. Um, at the University of uh, Berlin, he studied with some pretty big names. <laughs> like these, if you study theology, I mean, these guys are really big names. Adolf von Harnack is one. But the most influential person on Bonhoeffer's life is none other than uh, Karl Barth. And we'll talk about him in a little bit. Now, Karl Barth is uh, a major, major, probably one of the biggest theologians of the 20th century. And Karl Barth, his, his claim to fame, well, lots of claims to fame, but um, he, um, he pushed back against the German liberalism of the time. See, German liberalism basically had reduced Jesus to, you know, a moral teacher, a nice guy that you can learn a little bit from. 
and that the goal of the Christian life was essentially to be a good person, which was tantamount to being a good German citizen. And Bart says, no way, no way. Your picture, your, your, your God is way, way too small. Your Jesus is way, way too small. Uh, Jesus is our starting point if we even want to talk about God. It is Jesus who reveals. It is Jesus who saves. And so Bart introduces, reintroduces this huge picture of Jesus. And, uh, and it was his commentary on, uh, was it on Romans? They said it was like a, is like a, a, an explosion or an explosive tossed in the playground of the German liberals. It just blew everything up. And so for Bart, uh, the word of God was so important, uh, not human reason. And Bart, and the reason why I say it, Bart has a really big influence on Bonhoeffer. 1927, Bonhoeffer finishes his doctorate. Uh, his dissertation was on the communion of the saints. Uh, the, he has a real high view of the church. Now he has this chance to pastor then. He gets called into the pastorate. And he's uh, pastors for a little while in Barcelona. Uh, I think in a German community there. And then in Berlin. 1930, this is really important. He visits Union Theological Seminary in New York. Now, why is that important? Well, while he was there, he saw the effects of racism and prejudice against blacks in New York. And that really um, disturbed him. And uh, he saw the impact of a prejudiced and um, segregated society. And this would be a, this would have a big impact on him later on, especially when he saw the German treatment of the Jews under um, the Nazis. So in 1931, Bonhoeffer uh, returns to Germany, but Germany had changed drastically. Uh, National socialism was on the rise, led by Adolf Hitler. Within two years, his party uh, would have come to power. And uh, Bonhoeffer, in 1933, he actually speaks on the radio and he warns people about the dangers of what Hitler was teaching. And he says these words. He says, um, he warns uh, listeners against Hitler and he calls them to, quote, not to succumb to the wishes of those he leads will always seek to turn them into their idol. And he, he says, beware of idols. And while he's giving this speech on the radio, the radio was turned off. He was cut off. So things are starting to look pretty bad. And then shortly afterwards, the, um, the Reichstag, the uh, legislature of the German Reich was burned to the ground. State of emergency declared. Communists were blamed. And Hitler made himself dictator of all Germany. So what does this do to the church? Well, the story of uh, Nazi Germany and the story of the church is a complicated one. But there is an intentional move by Hitler to seduce the church, to get them on side. And this is a really disturbing picture here we see with uh, Hitler shaking hands with the clergy. And... uh, as one of this one teacher I once heard, uh, she, she said, uh, always, always beware of when the government wants the church to cooperate with them in their goals. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, I'm not, I, I'm not speaking today. I'm just talking about in, in, in World War II. <laughs> so it's a very complicated situation. Um, right from the beginning, in some ways, uh, Hitler, um, 
he endorsed uh, positive Christianity. But you have to realize that Christianity that Hitler was uh, endorsing was not really Christianity at all. And I, I don't, I'm not just saying this in denial. Like, if you actually unpack it, it had very little to do with the gospel and everything to do with kind of a neo-pagan understanding of, of, of Jesus. Um, he said uh, he supported the churches. Hitler supported the churches so long as they kind of towed the line. Um, on a personal level, we know that Hitler abandoned Christianity in the trenches in World War I. Um, he abandoned his, his faith. But he draws in public, he uses the language of Christianity to get support. And so he does two things. He uses the language of a crusade. Um, he talks about the Christian churches, um, how the church, uh, the ideal Christian is the ideal German. And so it's all about the German citizen. Um, and he called, um, when he talked about conversion, it wasn't conversion to Jesus. It was conversion to National Socialism, Nazism. And so it wasn't long before Hitler sets up this fellow to look after the church. And the fellow's name is um, Alfred Mueller. And so he sets up the, the, uh, the German Protestant church. Um, and they also um, introduced this, what is called the Führer principle, in which they endorsed Aryan, you know what I'm saying, Aryan, like the, the ideal German, blonde, blue-eyed. Um, they endorsed the Aryan supremacy, and it has anti-Semitic consequences. Basically, Jews were kicked out of the churches. Now, one of the questions that I'd like to ask you, just to see, um, how are we doing for time? Just for fun. Why do you think the churches in Germany were so quick to go along? I, and we'll, we'll just, oh, we won't do a breakout. Let me just hear from you. Here, I'll, I'll do the uh, stop sharing here, and I'll come back. I'll come back. Uh, stop sharing. There we go. So why do you think? I'm just curious. Any thoughts? They wanted to stay relevant. They wanted to stay relevant. Oh, very good. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Lori, I saw your hand up. Yeah, I, I would say it's because they had uh, an image of Christianity, but they weren't Christian. So their, their worldview was not God or Jesus's worldview. And, um, and I, I, I would just outright say there's, that's a lot of that going on today too. Okay. Yeah. I think there's something there. Anybody else? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The communists were the enemy. And yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Nazis were opposed to them. Then, uh, they were, uh, good allies. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's especially the case in Italy with Mussolini. That, 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 that theme is a big one there's something else you guys are missing though about uh Ger about germany and the church in germany anybody else have any good lutherans in our midst well the guy behind the lutheran church of course is martin luther martin luther yeah so martin luther had a certain understanding of the state hmm. and it's it goes by the name of the two kingdoms theology or two kingdom theory and so for uh, Martin Luther, he says, you know, the church is a church. And church is most important, right? It's about salvation. It's about going to heaven. It's about, you know, transformation. It's about the cross. It's all about Jesus. But there's another kingdom. So there's a kingdom of God, but there's also the kingdom of man. And that's, 
And that's just the kingdom of the state. That's the kingdom of, of you know, maintaining order. And so in, in, the, uh, in the kingdom of, of uh, in, in the second kingdom, in the kingdom of, of man, well, you know, you, you have to maintain order. And so you, you have to have laws and you have to punish people. And it has to be, you know, that's just, it's just the working of the state, the outwards, you know, everyday kind of laws that deal with people and making sure that the society you live in is a lawful, peaceful society. Now, the thing is, is these two kingdoms, though they should be related, they're actually, in theory, they weren't. They were separate. And so if you were a good Christian, okay, you could live your life as a good Christian. But if you were, let's say, a judge or if you're a policeman or something like that, well, then you had to operate differently. In fact, you may actually have to operate in a way that's not Christ-like for the sake of the state. And so these are two separate realms. And I think one of the hangovers for this is that in World War II, you had the church saying, okay, we're all about Jesus. Uh, The state is saying this, and they're trying to bring order. They're trying to get the economy going again. They're trying to make a good society. They're trying to push back against the enemies. And so we'll let the state do the state kind of things, and we'll do our church things, and because they're separate, separate issues. And I think that's one of the reasons why the church failed to respond. Uh, it's a really interesting phenomenon. You'd never get that with Calvinists. Calvinists Calvin believed, yeah, if the state doesn't honor Jesus, take it out. <laughs> take down the king. And so if you're a leader, you never wanted a Calvinist in, in, in power. <laughs> you never wanted Calvinists in, in, in your state. Well, in Germany at this time, there was some resistance. There was some resistance. And because um, not all the Protestants were happy with these changes. Um, when Mueller entered uh, his Aryan paragraph, there's a fellow named Martin Niemöller. Let me show you a picture of him. Martin Niemöller. Um, yeah, there he is on the left. Uh, he's a Lutheran pastor, and he founded the Pastors' Emergency League. And he wrote an immediate response, and he rallies opposition to this idea that the Jews had to be kicked out of the church and this Aryan principle. Um, about 1,300 people signed up right away. By the end of the year, 7,000 pastors had signed up. And this movement later on becomes uh, the confessing church movement, um, the movement that Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth would, uh, would lead up. And they would center themselves around scripture and the gospel. And Niemöller, uh, he was arrested. He was arrested in 1937. But the movement carried on. And, and uh, Niemöller is uh, famous for this. Um, oh, hang on. Let me just show you this. See if I can show you this one. Yeah. When the Nazis came for the communists, I remained silent. I was not a communist. When they locked up the Social Democrats, I remained silent. I was not a Social Democrat. When they came for the trade unionists, I did not speak out. I was not a trade unionist. When they came for the Jews, I remained silent. I wasn't a Jew. When they came for me, there was no one left to speak out. Um, pastors started to speak out. Um, they, they spoke out, um, and Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth kind of led the way as, a, as an act of discipleship, saying we cannot, we cannot um, allow this. And so we'll talk about what they did in a moment. Uh, but what I want to do is I'm going to give you guys a chance to, to uh, break into a group for, for a moment. 
I want you to answer this question. How's this for a question? <laughs> uh, what are some things happening in our culture and our churches? Um, what are the points of seduction facing the church today? What are some things happening in our culture and our churches which we need to stand against, even though this may land us in serious trouble? Now, I was saying that um, guy in, in the group that I was joining that, uh, I mean, that's the thing in our culture today. Um, you know, if you're not on board with whatever the prevailing idea is, it used to be, okay, we disagree and let's hash it out and let's talk about these things. I think you're wrong. And even you're shouting at each other, whatever. But now if you don't agree with the prevailing idea, it's like, be quiet, shut up. You cannot speak. And that's why I was saying that um, in, in, in a world where there is no accepted common good, in the sense that I respect you, you respect me. At least we respect each other. And we, we, we both recognize that we're trying to get at truth and we, and maybe we're coming at it from different ways, but there's, there's this mutual sense that we're pursuing truth and mutual respect. When that goes out the window, the only arbitrator between um, differing opinions is power. And so I shut you down or you try to shut me down. And I'll use political power, you use political power, we'll use social media power, whatever it happens to be. And that's why I think there's, there's some connection. I think there's some connection to pre-Nazi um, Germany. I also think that there's a big connection to uh, the Cultural Revolution in China, but that's a whole other uh, conversation. Let, let's, let's get back to our story of Bonhoeffer. Um, so in, in 1933, the Gestapo were starting to uh, arrest pastors who did not conform to the German Christian movement, uh, the Alfred uh, Mueller movement. Um, Bonhoeffer, he leaves Germany and he pastors a German-speaking congregation in England. And from there, he's, he's writing and he's connecting with the church and he's criticizing what's going on in, uh, with the uh, German uh, government. Um, they, uh, he and Karl Barth, they uh, pen the, um, the Barman Declaration, which is... Um, Primarily by Bart wrote it, but uh, the, uh, the Barman Declaration was just a real shot. It was a declaration saying, this is what we hold to be true. And one of the parts says this. It says, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Truly, truly, I say to you, he does not enter the sheepfold by the door, uh, but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. <laughs> I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And they said, we reject the false doctrine as though the church could have knowledge, uh, as, as though the church could and would have to acknowledge as a source of his proclamation, apart from and besides this one word of God, other powers, figures, and truths. Saying we just acknowledge Jesus, his revelation, his word as having authority. The idea of acknowledging any other power is wrong. Well, I'm sure this went over really well. It did not go over very well. Bonhoeffer, he returns to Germany in 1935. And he has an aim to help train up pastors for the confessing church. And he does so by setting up this seminary in a place called Finkenwald. Um, And he taught 25 residents. And it's kind of interesting. It's kind of like a monk monastic kind of feel, but with ping pong and tennis and stuff like that. Um, 
it's it's in uh, in that context that Bonhoeffer he wrote the book uh, Life Together. It's quite interesting. It's a very interesting time. Uh, Bonhoeffer um, he led this school, and um, the students a lot of them were you know good German students. And so Bonhoeffer he, he would have the students. He says, "I want you to meditate on this passage," and they'd like, "Okay, uh, Pastor Bonhoeffer, we've meditated on the passage." Uh, do you want us to analyze it? He goes, no, no, just meditate on it and pray on it. Okay, we've meditated on it and prayed on it. Now what? He goes, I want you to do this all week. And they're like, and they weren't used to doing that. They weren't used to just meditating and reflecting on God's word. And so Bonhoeffer really tries to cultivate the soul in this and really teach them how to pray and how to, how to listen carefully to God and, and treat the word of God as a living word of God. I have this one book. I'll show it to you. Um, this one here. Uh, med- Can you read that? Meditating on the word. Um, it's so rich. It's so good. And it's, it's Bonhoeffer's meditations on God, God's word, sometimes through letters, sometimes through different things that he wrote. Now, this goes well for about a couple of years. And then the Gestapo, again, they, uh, they shut it down. And so Bonhoeffer, he actually leaves and he goes back to the States in 1939. And so think about the year, 1939. That's the beginning of World War II. Now, Karl Barth writes to Bonhoeffer. He says, you know what? You'll do much better if you're here in Germany than being stuck over in the United States. And so Bonhoeffer comes back and they they say that um, Karl Barth, he regretted, he regretted giving this advice to Bonhoeffer because Bonhoeffer, is, as we will find out, does not survive, right? He gets arrested. Uh, from 1940 onwards, he gets involved in the resistant movements and he's kind of loosely connected to two failed assassination attempts of Hitler, on Hitler. And uh, he's connected to these. And uh, Bonhoeffer is an interesting story. We can't really talk about it tonight. There's so much to look at Bonhoeffer. But how he comes to the decision that it is right to basically kill Hitler. It's a really interesting journey that he goes on. Um, so, but he's implicated and initially he gets arrested and the first, the prison's not too bad. Um, his dad had some good connections and so he's treated fairly well. And one of the most remarkable books that Bonhoeffer's written, and I've, I've read them all, uh, I've read this, this book, um, is his letters from prison. And they're very sad because just before he goes into prison, he gets engaged. He gets engaged to um, Maria von Wedemeyer. And uh, gets engaged. She's quite young. And, um, and when you're reading the letters, they're beautiful letters, but it's sad because in each letter, you get the sense from Bonhoeffer. He says, I know my release is imminent and then we'll be together and then we'll have our wedding. And I know I'm going to be released any day now. And we know on the other side, he doesn't get released. Um, and so it's, it's quite sad. And so while he's in, in uh, prison though, the letters are quite cool because he's always writing to his family members and friends and says, you know, I'm thinking about this. Can you get this one book? It's on my shelf. It's just like, you know, a few books in, or I need this book. Can you send me these books? And so he's always reading and always writing. And then um, this carries on. Bonhoeffer doesn't make it out of prison. In fact, he gets implicated more directly into the, into the second, into the second um, assassination attempt. And um, 
gets thrown into a rougher prison. And uh, while he's there, um, he, like, he doesn't make it out, but he ends up pastoring the people there. He ends up pastoring the prisoners. And um, one, one thing that happened is um, it was apparently a direct uh, order from Hitler himself uh, was to kill Bonhoeffer, is to execute Bonhoeffer. And so just weeks before the Allies liberated the prisoners, Bonhoeffer was executed. And we have, we have a kind of a um, um, couple, uh, one eyewitness account of it. He says this, well, on, on the week before, on the day before he died, he died on uh, April 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer had preached to the prisoners from Isaiah 53, 5, with his stripes, we are healed. And, um, and then this one fellow, Payne Bess, an English officer, he shared a prison cell with Bonhoeffer. And he said this during his last, Bonhoeffer's last days. He says, quote, Bonhoeffer was all humility and sweetness. He always seemed to diffuse an atmosphere of happiness, of joy, even in the smallest event in life, and deep gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few men that I ever met to whom God was real and close. And the last thing I think Bonhoeffer said as he was was, uh, hanged, as he was leaving, um, he said, uh, this is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. And so he's, he's quite a remarkable person. What I want to do is just talk. We got uh, 10 minutes. I just want to talk um, briefly about his teaching, because I think uh, his teaching is, is, is quite, uh, quite amazing. So what can we get from Bonhoeffer's teaching? Let me just uh, bring us back to, uh, to our man Bonhoeffer here. Um, well, there's a picture of that's uh, Fink and Walden and the, the school. There's Bonhoeffer in the middle there, the glasses. Um, what can we learn from his teaching? Well, a couple things, especially on his thing on community, his work on community, is this. In a hostile world, the gift of Christian community should not be taken for granted. Well, is that not a word for today? <laughs> In a hostile world, the gift of Christian community should not be taken for granted. Wow, I think that's an apt word for our time. Um, you know, Bonhoeffer, he knew. He, he knew what the psalmist said, you know, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. But now, in our current day, because of COVID-19, we're in a shutdown mode and we're socially distanced from one another. And I think it's really affecting people. Um, it's really affecting followers of Jesus. Yes, Zoom is fine and this is okay, but it's not the same. It's not the same. Um, and so Bonhoeffer, he lays out the importance of Christian community. Secondly, he says this, in a self-reliant world, Jesus needs to be the center of all of our relationships. Um, he says the minimum number for the Christian life is three, not two. Because yes, you're with a friend, but the third is Jesus, right? Jesus is our mediator. And so he says there's, there's no time in the Christian life for this me and Jesus kind of spirituality. We are stuck with each other. Uh, the church is a supernatural community. And this is what he says. He says, the church, he says, the, what's he said? the body of Christ does not exist for us to check its temperature. I like that. Um, he says, you know, we need to respect the church. Yeah, the church isn't perfect, but it is a body of Christ. It is God's invention. It is a gift to us. And in a world full of ideals, we need to not make the church into an ideal. That's a danger. The church is not the ideal. The church, if, if, if you know, sometimes I've seen people do this, you know, 
um, people who are baptized. Uh, and years ago, I remember seeing this. And in, in when a person is being baptized, we ask the question, why do you want to be baptized? And they say, well, I just love this church. And we're like, okay, I'm glad you like the church, but there's got to be another reason. <laughs> um, because it's not just because the church is going to, church by itself, if that's all you care about, it can become an idol. Uh, it's the head of the church, Jesus Christ, that needs to be our focus. That's what Paul talks about in that passage that I read. You press on, you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Um, a church, apart from Jesus, is just, I mean, it's a social club. And a lot of, and I'll just be honest, a lot of liberal churches that go down the, the way of, uh, you know, jettisoning the, the, uh, the authority of the God's word or jettisoning, jettisoning um, you know, um, the authority of God's word and the centrality of Jesus, the ex exclusivity of Jesus. Uh, these churches, they, they become country clubs. Um, and it's, you're just kind of playing games because Jesus has to be at the center, right? And the other one is, is love is not all you need. <laughs> Contrary to the Beatles, love is not all you need. Um, love is important. Of course, um, but we need truth. And a church without discipline is not a church. The church needs to have discipline. It needs to have truth. It has grace. It has discipline. It all goes together. And the other thing that Bonhoeffer says, oh, sorry, that's just a quote, is nobody will, oh, this, I like this. This is really interesting. I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this one. Nobody flourishes in community until he can be alone. And no one can be alone properly until he's experienced Christian community. And so he says, um, let him who cannot be alone beware of Christian community. These are people that just can't stand to be alone with themselves. Or let him who is not in community beware of being alone. And he says, the two, you need the two, you, you know, you, you probably know people like this. Don't point at them on the, on the screen, it's wherever they happen to be. Um, but some people, they just can't be alone. And if they can't be alone with themselves, they can't be alone with God. And if they can't be alone with God, they're probably not going to do well in community. They're going to be, there's just going to be some wonky dynamics. Um, on the other hand, um, person who's only alone and just wants to be alone it's just me and jesus um you know they, they need to learn how to do community um, and so he, he talks about the importance of both of uh yes solitude but also the need for community and he says only in the fellowship do we learn to be rightly alone and only in aloneness solitude do we learn to live rightly in fellowship and I like that. I mean, the importance of fellowship and also the importance to recognize that you know, at the end of the day, we don't die in community. We die alone. And every one of us is going to have to stand before the throne and give an account for our life. And yet we're also invited into this beautiful thing called Christian community. The other thing he says, in an arrogant and independent age, we need to be part of a Christian community that takes seriously the need to grow in Christ and read God's word and practice holy habits. And so one of the things that Bonhoeffer again taught is the meditation on the Psalms in particular. 
And scripture reading was really important. Singing together, even with a mask on today. (laughs) Singing together, praying together, eating together. Eugene Peterson once said, all church should be done around a meal. Working together, playing together. And Bonhoeffer, he he enjoyed playing. He enjoyed tennis. He enjoyed ping pong. He was often playing with the students. Uh, Personal habits of of guarding our tongue and, and listening and bearing with one another. And the last thing I want to share with you, and then maybe we can open up and talk a little bit, is uh, what Bonhoeffer teaches us in terms of how to live. I think Bonhoeffer teaches us to discern the good and the bad in the world and to name it boldly. He did it. He, he's very forthright. But he does so with, a, with still a humility, with a recognition that God is sovereign. It's not him standing beside God as a spokesperson for God. It's, it's, there's a humility to what he says. And then he encouraged us to know what we believe, to confess it, to profess it, and to live it out. And so the challenge for me in this is, do I know what I believe? The other thing is he encourages us to be biblically literate. That's a big deal for Bonhoeffer. We need to, he said, I love this. I read this this week. He says, he says, you need to get up early. I know in, in this, uh, quarantine age getting up early is not that easy but he says you need to get up early and and receive the grace that jesus has for you first thing i thought oh that's a great way to put it and so and and to study god's word um and then he challenges us he says there may be some time where as a church we need to practice civil disobedience because, <laughs> because we can respect our leaders, we can respect uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, we can respect Bonnie Henry, we can respect Adrian Dix, we can respect uh, Horgan. Um, uh, for our Albertan friends, uh, Jason Kenney, we can respect, the, but they are not Lord. There's only one Lord, and that's Jesus. And finally, Bonhoeffer teaches us about suffering and deprivation in a world of plenty and therapy, in a therapeutic world. Because he understood suffering. He suffered quite a bit, especially in the second prison camp. And he struggled with some real doubts in his mind. And he he really struggled. One of his uh, poems, um, I think, is quite powerful. I want to end our time by looking at this um, poem. It's called, uh, Who Am I? doesn't really rhyme, but I I like the poem. Um, Who am I? They often tell me. I step from my cell's confinement, calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me. I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune, equably, smiling, proudly. So people are, and when he's in prison, they say, oh, you're quite a remarkable prisoner like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? And he says this, he says, um, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voice of birds, voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing an expectation of great events, 
powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and emptying at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I the, you know, the, the person that everybody's impressed with or am I this mess that I feel? Am I both at once? A hypocrite before others and before myself, a contemptible woebegone weakling. Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God. I am thine. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.